Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Does it matter which book of the Bible you read or which testament it comes from? Where should beginners start? Are some of the books more important than others? What is the purpose of the New Testament? Is the concept of grace a new idea or was it part of the story all along? How do the books of the Bible interact with each other or within the context of the Bible's storyline? Richard and I reflect on the continuity of the Bible and the importance of, well, jumping in head first. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 47 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Since the book has come out and you have it published, you've gained a different perspective on what you've been thinking and how you've been developing those ideas. And one thing that became interesting to me is that understanding Galatians gave you an understanding of the Bible as a whole. I started working on the Galatians manuscript about the same time that I started doing a biblical program at church on Genesis. We spent a year at St. Elizabeth going through Genesis. And I remember coming back to a specific refrain over and over again in those discussions over the course of that year. We'd read a passage, we would do a study of the language, the grammar, the context, the narrative, all of this, working with commentaries and so forth. And it often struck me that we were in a book club with the Apostle Paul. I would say this repeatedly. Because everywhere I turned, it just seemed like there was something in Genesis that was reflected in Galatians. The funny thing is, I started gaining insight into Genesis based on Paul's letter, which I had already started working on. But at the same time, there were things about Paul's letter that I would never have come to terms with had I not been grappling with Genesis. Can you think of a specific example? The main theme of the book has to do with grace. This idea that God is the provider, God is the one who does the work, God is the one who supplies everything, so that man only has to accept what God supplies and live in gratitude and obedience under the shelter of God's generosity. I mean, this is what's happening in Genesis. God creates a setting for life. He offers life to all of the different creatures, including the human beings. The human beings in Genesis aren't special. They're part of the community of creatures that were created to live. And this setting for life, the gift of life, all of it is just born out of God's generosity. And man in Genesis keeps screwing it up by trying to do it himself, trying to build his own dynasty. Instead of accepting his place in God's creation, he wants to build infrastructure, to build tribe and clan. Genesis is a very interesting case because it ties the whole Bible together in a way. So by reading Galatians, you can't help but notice the importance of grace. But then when you read Genesis, you notice how grace plays out in a narrative way. Well, Christians tend to, because they've basically hijacked these words, 
there is a Christian notion of grace that has nothing to do with the Bible, and I would say it's the mainstream notion of grace. It's the notion of grace that people fought over in the Reformation, and everybody misunderstood. It ranges from something like, I can do whatever I want, to when life is hard, God sprinkles this pixie dust on me and I feel better. But all of this is just, it's not what Scripture is dealing with. Grace is literally the favor that someone in a position of power offers you you may deserve it, you may not deserve it, but you have no control over it. The best way to describe what grace is in a scriptural setting is someone who may be innocent or may be guilty goes to stand before a king who's sitting in judgment, and the king gives a pardon or withholds a pardon. If he withholds the pardon, he withholds his grace. If he gives you the pardon, you're off the hook, and that's it. There's no deliberation about you. It's simply the decision of the king. No human king is a provider, but this is the metaphor that scripture chooses. The king is the one who provides for his subjects, who supposedly provides life, who establishes the setting for life, you know, the infrastructure and so forth. Once you understand that and you start reading the Older Testament, you begin to see that this idea of grace is not Paul's idea. It's not Jesus's idea in the gospel narratives. Mm -hmm. It's an idea that permeates the text from Genesis through Revelation. Over and over and over again, we have examples. I mentioned one Sunday where David, the shepherd, just a young boy up against the champion of the Philistines, defeated him with a stone. This is not because David was clever. Anyone who thinks about it objectively can't help but compare it to the scene of a 12-year-old Palestinian boy swinging a stone at a tank. And everyone who sees a boy throwing a stone at a tank knows that it's a lost cause. It's an idiotic metaphor. So the fact that David, when he was a boy, defeated a champion just by throwing a stone at him tells you it wasn't David that defeated Goliath. It was the Lord that defeated Goliath, and David professes as much when he takes him down. But once David ceases to be a shepherd and becomes a king and wants to build his own dynasty and establish his own power, he gets entrapped in war without end, ad nauseum. I think this is an interesting... Uh, grace, right? Grace versus man striving. That's the theme that I'm pointing at. Yeah, and I think this is really interesting, the way that you draw this parallel between themes in Genesis, themes in Galatians, and themes then in Samuel also. You started to notice these different appearances of the same theme, and then you started to draw them together and allow them to inform each other. So I think a lot of times Christians will read the New Testament and misunderstand how it functions. The point that you often make that the Older Testament, as opposed to the Old Testament, because you simply see them as telling one story that covers certain contours and certain themes and grace is one of them. Galatians says something about grace, and Genesis says something about grace, but you have to read them in terms of each other. And in that way, a lot of times Christians think that, oh, the Old Testament predicts Jesus and the New Testament is about Jesus, in very simplified terms, which I even hear. But that's not what it's doing, per se. It's trying to tell a whole story about grace. And you have to read the whole thing in order to understand truly what grace is. So yeah, like you're saying, the good feeling that comes with grace or the sacrifice on the cross, that's grace. But there is no grace on the cross if you don't know grace to Abraham where he received a son. Well, no, they talk about grace the way George Lucas talks about the force in Star Wars. Sometimes I hear people using this terminology and I keep waiting for someone to take out a lightsaber. They deal with it as though it's some kind of magical mystery substance or 
force or I don't know what. It's not. It's practical. The point of grace and its function in scripture, its systematic function, is to put the human being in a specific frame of mind so that they understand that they are completely dependent on God for everything. They deserve nothing and they live by his grace. I love the old Anglo-Saxon expression, there but for the grace of God go I, because it captures correctly the humility that grace is trying to produce in us so that not only would we not judge others, but we ourselves would be open to instruction. That's the key. And when human beings assert power, on the one hand, it creates conflict and suffering and is antithetical to the fellowship of humanity and love, but it also prevents us from being in the frame of mind to actually hear what scripture is saying. You can't receive instruction when you're building yourself up. So this is why scripture is so harsh in its critique, systematically. I mean, the prophets are ruthless. They make Paul look very gentle, comparatively. They keep attacking, attacking, attacking the ego of the hearer. And the harder you try in the Older Testament to prove that you can pass the bar with the prophets, or for that matter, in the historical writings, because you have people failing all over the place in the historical writings. The harder you push to pass the bar, the more, if you're honest with yourself, when faced with the judgment of the text, you fail. So all Paul is doing is saying, look, you still don't get it. You fail, and you have to fail, and I'm going to keep hitting you over the head with this judgment until you accept your failure, so that you can then enjoy the fact that despite your failure, God is still offering you an opportunity to live in fellowship. This is, to me, key. And people struggle with this because in the Older Testament, they think of all these people as heroes and champions. So Because everyone's a Hellenist. They want champions and heroes and gods and goddesses. But that's not how Scripture functions. Everyone in Scripture is an anti-hero. Even God, who technically is the only protagonist in the entire story, loses in the addendum that we call the New Testament. And, by the way, the fact that he lost in the New Testament is not something new. Because anybody who reads the story of God and his mercy towards Israel and how Israel treats him would think that God was nuts for sticking with Israel. So it's a counter-narrative, it's a counter-system, and it's integrated. For me, what was really exciting about this particular project is that in reading Galatians, I read the whole Bible, and in reading the whole Bible, I'm reading Galatians. Now, that's not to say that each book doesn't have different facets that deserve detailed exploration in their own right, but we can't fall in the trap of disassembling the canonical totality. Right. It's important that in reading Galatians, you're reading the whole Bible. In reading the whole Bible, you're reading Galatians. But you can't read Galatians instead of the whole Bible. And you can't read the rest of the Bible instead of Galatians. Cor- correct. It's all, it all informs each other. It, it informs each other. But what's interesting is that I began by hitting it hard with Galatians for several years. And it worked on my mind the way that I believe Galatians was intended to work on the mind of the uncircumcised, so that by grappling with what Paul is saying, you would have a chance of reading the Older Testament. It's an invitation to a banquet, but the banquet is the Pentateuch, which is why I go nuts when people carry around these little pocket Bibles with the Psalms and the New Testament. 
It's not a Bible. I don't know what it is if it doesn't have the entire tradition. You know, we talk a lot about following the storyline, reading the entire story, reading the entire context. And what you're saying really reinforces that if you're going to read one book, you need to understand what else is going on. So oftentimes we get the question, you get the question, I get the question, okay, I want to study the Bible, where should I start? And I say start wherever you're having a good time. Start wherever you enjoy reading it and just read it. And like you say, if you read deeply in one spot for years and years and years, one book, it's going to work on your mind and it's going to change the way you think. And then once you've undergone that process, going back and reading the rest of the Bible, you're reading with that brain that's been partially formed by that book. And then as you read the rest of the Bible, it continues to shape and form your mind and your thinking. And each book that you read deeply, it's going to change the way that you read the rest of the Bible. I think there's something very practical that you've demonstrated in writing the book is that when you take one book and just decide, I'm going to study this for a long time, ideas come of it. Absolutely. And a changed mind comes of it. Absolutely. A new reading of the rest of the Bible comes of it. Galatians, I mean, I I don't want to sound, I'm not emoting here or being melodramatic, but for me, it changed everything. Galatians changed everything. It reformatted my life, not just my understanding, but everything about how I approach everything. Because Paul really boils everything down to what really counts. And when scripture talks about life and resurrection and salvation, these are beautiful words that are meant to express in a kind of poetic, systematic language what really counts. When Paul talks about redeeming the time, what he's talking about is not wasting time, actually rescuing the time you have from its bondage to stupidity and reclaiming it for the cause of the gospel and for living according to the gospel. And what's so beautiful is that Galatians taught me beyond the shadow of a doubt that anything that does not pertain to the love of neighbor is malarkey and noise as Paul says beautifully elsewhere in his poem about love. You're just making noise. If you're not talking about the commandment to love the neighbor, you've done nothing no matter what you achieve. I think it's a wonderful conclusion to having read the book. So by no means would I discourage anyone from buying your book, but I would say Galatians is a nice short book. It's only six chapters. So you can read it in the evening. Well, this is why I picked it. And this is why I'm so intent upon the methodology of the Ephesus School. The methodology of the Ephesus School is a non-methodology. Because when people sit down to discuss what books should we read for our Bible classes for our children, or what should our curricula be, in my mind, we are already betraying the instruction to redeem the time when we talk this way. Because if you're serious about scripture, it doesn't matter which book you pick up. It does not matter. Just pick a book. There's no one book that you can teach adults or children or anyone in an education program that is more valuable than the other. Each book is valuable in its own right and integrates with the whole systematically. So the time you spend discussing what to read, you should spend reading. This is my point. I chose Galatians because at seminary, back in the days when we still thought of everything as being historical, like documentary history. It was identified as Paul's first letter. And scholars would say, and I disagree with them now, because I think the whole thing is authentic as a construction, right? 
But scholars would say this is really authentically by Paul and so forth. So I was always drawn to Galatians. And we used to have a saying at school, you know, that Galatians is the gospel. And so, so that's what got me on this track. But I could have started with Philemon. I probably even could have started with Ruth. It doesn't matter because the way that Ruth deals with the Davidic dynasty in and of itself points to what Paul is doing with the Davidic dynasty in Galatians, what Matthew is doing with the Davidic dynasty in the opening chapter of the genealogy. In Samuel. Exactly. It's all, exactly, it's all there. For those, as Jesus says again and again, who have ears to hear, but you don't develop ears to hear by picking and choosing. You just go. You just have to jump in the water, as I say in the book, and start swimming. And in the Bible, you're always swimming upstream. Right. And you don't get ears to hear by listening to a podcast either. No. So I just would recommend anyone who listens to this, if you miss a few episodes because you're reading scripture, more power to you. I really think that the way that you really develop these ears, the way you develop the sight, the way that you, as you say, Father, join Apostle Paul's book club. The book club of the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Maybe we'll rename the, we'll rename the podcast. There you go. Um, is that you have to read. You have to spend the time reading. And so all of our wonderful listeners who comment on Facebook and who have talked to us personally and emailed us, all of this is wonderful. But for your sake, I hope that you, listener, are reading. Pick a book and read it and keep reading it and read it again. Lent is now upon us. If there's something you want to do during Lent, pick a book and read it until Christmas. Just read it over and over again. Absolutely. Just keep doing it. If it's the Psalms, if it's Matthew, if it's Philemon, if it's First Chronicles, if it's Ezra, just pick a book and just keep reading it deeply. Because a lot of times people say, oh, the Bible is so big, the Bible is so intimidating, blah, blah, blah. What I used to say to my students is I would say, if you can't understand a book, you can understand a chapter. If you can't understand a chapter, you can understand a page. If you can't understand a page, you can understand a sentence. If you can't understand a sentence, you can understand a half a sentence. If you can't understand half a sentence, it is truly because you refuse to understand. We have to stop making excuses and excuses and sin and go for it. You know, when I think about this podcast, I think often about the editor's introduction to the Chrysostom Bible Commentary series. In his introduction to the series, Father Paul Tarazzi talks about continuing the work of John Chrysostom, and he talks within the context of the Antiochian school. He speaks of the function of the sermon and how the sermon is not adding to the reading, and he doesn't even say that the sermon is explaining the reading. The sermon, he argues, is nothing but an invitation to read the Bible. And in this sense, if this is how the Bible is Literature podcast functions, I myself would be very happy about what we're doing here. Well, thank you very much, Father. Your work is wonderful in that it invites all of us to go and read and study to the extent that any one of us is able. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you very much, Father. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.